0: All right. Uh, you are listening to the Hellbent Podcast, a fen- feminist podcast for those who persist and resist. Uh, Women's March 2018, folks. That's the topic Woo! of this week's episode. Um, I don't know why they moved it up to uh, inauguration uh, anniversary, but you know what? Um yeah. As a, as a cis uh, male, it is not my position to tell women what to do. That's that's what I've learned throughout the past year, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I I can't stop apologizing to women. Um, that is my default position now. Mm-hmm. Um, no,
1: mine mine too, and yeah
0: yeah, we're no, kidding, folks. This too. is not this is not <laughs> this is not the women's March podcast. This is uh, questions like this. and we have oh. we have another fat episode, I think, uh, because this is about uh, arguably one of the most insane people in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> <sighs> <laughs>
1: so sorry, sorry, I just. <clears throat> need to need to get into character. Need yeah. Into character. On
0: this one. Yeah. If you if you hear one of us leaving the microphone and um, try to live off the land at some point, then you will understand. Ah.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm I'm ready. All right. I'm good.
0: Um. Good. Yeah. So yeah, this is um, this is questions like this, and uh, this week we're asking what's the most insane thing Daniel Day-Lewis has done to to quote unquote get into character.
1: Well, I think the better question is what's the most insane thing he hasn't done. I'm surprised he hasn't like cryogenically frozen himself for a role.
0: I think that's uh, I think that's a next step, you know.
1: Well, isn't he technically retired right now? Yeah.
0: So they'll just put him on ice and then unfreeze him at some point.
1: Yes, when the world needs another very dramatic acting performance, they call upon the cryogenically frozen Daniel Day-Lewis.
0: Yeah, they'll unfreeze Daniel Day-Lewis and um, in case they need someone to play. Uh, I don't know.
1: Um, <laughs> I bet. No, 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 no. They'll do a remake of they'll do a remake of the Iceman cometh, and,
0: <laughs>
1: but in the very literal definition of the word.
0: Yeah, God, can you imagine if he was like, um, if he played Captain America at the end of the movie, he would just actually be stored in ice and revived forty years later.
1: <laughs> he'd go around town, actually, uh, stopping uh, random crimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sticking with the general topic, Daniel Day-Lewis is considered one of the, the best actors of all time. The man's won three Academy Awards for Best Actor, the most by anybody for that particular uh, award. And, yeah, let's just say he likes to take things to the extreme, uh, whenever he does a role,
0: yeah, um, he's what most people associate with the term method actor, and I think we need to, I think we need to unpack what method acting means because there's a lot of confusion, um, even between people who actually are actors and then people like us who are just uh, just watch a ton of movies in theater.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> no, the general sense of method acting is like you know. You essentially forego who you currently are and assume the role of the character you're playing, no matter who it is. You study, you know, their mannerisms, you study, you know, you survey the land as it were, although we'll get to that later on with Daniel Day-Lewis's career, but you find out. You spend months upon months of research on a particular aspect of this character, and then you essentially channel that character through the entire production. You basically, like Robert Downey Jr. said uh, in *Tropic Thunder*, I don't drop character character until I do the DVD commentary.
0: Yeah, or you know, I don't read the script. The script reads me. That's pretty much. Yeah. It's a kind of koan that you you embody if you're a method actor. And I mean, properly speaking, method acting is really, we're strictly talking about the principles set out by Lee Strasberg, who was a student of Konstantin Stanislavski, who most people would consider to be the godfather of uh, method acting, who had his own principles uh, principles of acting called the Stanislavski system but there's there's also things like the stuff that they teach at the Stella, Ad, Stella Adler School of Acting and then there's a Meisner technique and then there's of course um, David Mehmet's, uh more I guess a philosophical outlook. <laughs>
1: yeah and if you're confused by what we're saying look up the the play and the movie uh glengarry glen ross and you'll uh you'll understand
0: yeah so you know at its most basic is that the method acting helps people get into character by getting into the headspace by understanding and relating to the characters on like an emotional level on a on on like you know an intellectual level and they gradually identify and the character becomes kind of second nature to yourself so you're not really Mm -hmm. acting in that sense you yeah you just kind of fall into it you know and i mean i guess now that's a really common way to think of acting but you know in in the past that wasn't really how people acted in uh either in movies or in theater
1: Right, because they were given on-the-job education, and all the uh, all the movie studios that they were signed to at the time, or they had had experience on uh, on the stage before signing on with a major studio.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I guess everyone now is a method actor. Um, everyone now does the, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, if you if you watch the late night circuit everyone whenever they get interviewed for their roles they're always like, "Oh yeah, you know, I uh I did uh, four months of ballet to get into this role as uh as the first ballet of whatever or I uh I I built a fucking log cabin to get into the headspace of uh, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. I was I actually hired a prostitute and uh, came out of her pussy <laughs> yeah, that's uh, or, that's, uh yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, there are very few people nowadays. I mean, yes, everyone says like their method and all that, but there are a few people that are actually can claim to be method people. Like you know, De Niro, people like Daniel Day Lewis, people like Christian Bale. Yeah, those are the three I can think of off the top of my head who, for the most part, throughout their careers, have been very, very method when it comes to their performances.
0: I think also I would add Jared Leto,
1: <sighs>
0: but you know, um, <sighs> everyone disagrees and it's a point of contention, but it, uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, look, a lot of people like Jared Leto, I just, I just think he's a pompous, uh, pretentious Dick.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, also, um, when he was doing the Joker, you know like I mean yeah i actually uh I actually mailed dead rats to Margot Robbie and yeah,
1: and he mailed everybody used condoms and
0: yeah I think i well, I think that's just how Jared leto like socializes with people so
1: <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's <laughs> been uh doing that since he was uh, Jordan Catalano on my so called life, yeah
0: <laughs> That's what that's what you get when you sign up for the Thirty Seconds to Mars fan club. Is you get um, <laughs> you get Jared Leto's uh, leavings in the mail. <laughs>
1: His comings too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that was like Thirty Seconds to Mars was like really popular, and I can never figure out why.
1: Yeah, I never understood it. I I've listened to some of their music before, and it's just like uh okay,
0: like even if you were into like I guess you call that emo or whatever, or like like pop rock, but it was like, yeah, it's not that remarkable,
1: no, it's like you know Fallout boy, Green Day, red hot Chili Peppers are doing the same thing,
0: yeah, and i and i mean i I mean, I would still argue that Fallout boy, um. In the grand scheme of things, they had the best singer out of everyone. Patrick Stump actually has the best voice out of that generation. But it's just Mm -hmm. the songwriting was really derivative. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, so, um ddl uh that's that's what the cool people call daniel day lewis that's right um he's been knighted he's been uh he's been in a hot list of movies from basically the 80s and he's super selective about his roles if you notice his filmography is very sparse compared to other actors in his level but um i think it benefits by him you know being critically acclaimed in pretty much everything he's been in
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i mean there's really nothing like seeing a memorable daniel day lewis performance and that goes back that goes all the way back to the the early 80s but before we talk about you know the films that like launched him to starve him i just want to point out for those uh for those of you uh eagle-eyed uh, viewers out there he actually has a a blink and you'll miss it a cameo in the film gandhi
0: yeah um and before that uh sunday bloody sunday actually that's right um when
1: what he did when he was 14 years yeah, old yeah, he yeah. plays a, <laughs> he plays a kid who just keys a car and that's it
0: yeah hey uh we gotta start somewhere
1: that's right yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I feel like the film that really, uh, really launched him, or really started to get him uh, attention, was My Beautiful Wanderette.
0: Yeah, and I think not a lot of people today are really familiar with his earlier work. You know, I mean, I, think, I know. I've, I think everyone's seen Last of the Mohicans, uh Gangs of New York, There Will Be Blood, Lincoln, Blood, Lincoln, Crucible, mm-hmm. but. I feel like before *Last of the Mohicans*, no one's, like revisited his work.
1: Well, I mean, *My Left Foot*.
0: Yeah, *My Left Foot*. But I like. But you're right. Yeah.
1: But you're right. No one's really gone back and looked at his uh, earlier work. And *My Beautiful Laundrette* kind of captures who he would eventually uh, become. So, like, so the movie takes place uh, in the mid '80s. During the uh, the Thatcher years of uh, of the UK, and it evolves around this uh, uh, two people. Uh, one is played by Daniel Day Lewis. The other is played by what's his name?
0: Gordon Warnick.
1: You know, uh, Gordon Warnicki. And Gordon, I think that's his name. Yeah. yeah. And Gordon Warnicki, he plays. Uh, he plays a British Pakistani-British uh, 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 student, and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is his former former childhood friend, and they eventually meet up at one point in the film, and they actually become lovers. And I feel like it's very interesting that there is a movie, especially during the Thatcher years of England, that takes the time to... Uh, explore this topic. You know, there weren't a lot of films coming out at the time that discussed the uh, gay romance.
0: Yeah. And especially with like the British Asian community. I mean, to this day, it's probably still not a really explicit topic. Right. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful movie. Um, the contrasting, uh, re- you know circumstances between uh Gordon Warnicki's character and uh Daniel Day-Lewis's character uh and how they eventually become caretakers and business managers of this uh, the t- the t- titular laundrette and all the tribulations that comes with like you know them being in a, a homosexual relationship is
1: but,
0: yeah it's still, it still still holds up
1: mm-hmm. no it really does and it not only deals with that; it also deals with the uh, the ever-growing tension between the the Pakistani and the uh, the British community. It deals with the traditional Pakistani values. It deals with drugs, violence, sex. It, it's got it all. This yeah. Movie.
0: And yeah, you know, um, Daniel Day-Lewis is kind of like a street punk kind of guy. That's. Um,
1: mm-hmm
0: will come in handy for his uh later role.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. And it's actually a sharp contrast between this film and what he uh what he did next. Yeah. Cuz he goes from being a, a street punk to a man of high society in Merchant Ivory's classic A Room with a View.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, let's let's go into it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, so if you don't know, Merchant and Ivory were this uh, uh, producer director uh, combo who, in the mid eighties to early nineties, put together these magnificent period pieces, starting with this one. And I think they, yeah, I think they uh, they won a few Oscars between the two of them. It was Ismail Merchant who produced the films mm-hmm. and James Ivory who directed them. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you're going to see, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of big, extravagant mansions. You're going to see a very posh, stiff upper lip amongst all the, uh, all the uh, characters. Yeah, you're speaking very.
0: <laughs> yeah, everyone's everyone's speaking in RP, and I mean, you know, particularly Room with a View is set during the Edwardian era. It's very. Uh... It's extremely posh, and it's uh, yeah, starring Helena bon- Bonham Carter, uh, too. Um, yeah, as uh, you know, who develops a love with uh, Julian Sands, who's you know in the uh, in the classic uh, high society woman meets uh, free spirited. Uh, well, I mean, is is uh, the Julian Sands character more, uh, you know? I guess you could say he's more like you know nonconformist or mm-hmm. free-spirited than um, well yeah exactly. Daniel Day-Lewis's character.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, Julian Sands is more of a more of a forward-thinking uh, progressive. He does not like living in the, uh, the like the Victorian era, and Daniel Day-Lewis is the opposite. He's the very you know posh, you know oh you know this guy I must marry. This girl, at whatever cost, because it would affect affect my station if I don't, you know. And of course, I am very rich, and I need to do things, mm-hmm. all that, except something like that. But yeah, his character's name, Daniel day lewis character name, is uh, Cecil Vice, yeah. which kind of gives kind of gives you an idea of the kind of guy he already is. With the last name Vice,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just like we said, it's um extremely lavish production set partially in England and also in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of... So, you know, if, you're, if your kid is uh, one of those study abroad type of kids, this is their kind of movie.
1: Oh, I, I was one of those study abroad <laughs> kind of kids. And this, uh, let's just say this didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> No. <laughs> I never met anybody like uh Helena Bonham Carter Carter when I was living in uh, in Florence.
0: Yeah. Uh well I mean the other situation probably is uh Call Me by Your Name where you either strike up a romance with uh with a local Italian girl or uh, your dad's assistant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no but like there are those films that that american filmmakers love to do that all that always love like you know to glorify like you know every uh every essence of italy you know we'll we'll start playing we'll start the trailer with accordion music and we'll cut to sweeping shots of rome or venice or florence we'll cut to people uh, eating pasta and trying to speak in a faux italian accent.
0: Yeah, there's always like bicycling through the italian countryside. Or um,
1: riding on a or riding on a moped like you're Cary grant and audrey hepburn. Yeah, like
0: you're on a vespa in a city. Um,
1: <laughs> it's the classic
0: classic tropes of cinema. And uh, that's right. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what you'll see in room with a view. Um it's just, uh, it's basically upper class porn, kind of like Downton Abbey.
1: It was uh, Downton Abbey before Downton Abbey like became a thing. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And um, well, there's there's the there's the other um, early roles that he had. Um, Unbearable lightness of being, where he he he's basically a doctor that has too much sex. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah I, I love i love movies that have these uh complex uh titles but it just comes to a guy who bones too much uh falling in love with someone
0: yeah you know i mean it's like uh you, you know you can boil down requiem for a dream to basically it's like two heroin addicts uh like fucking <laughs> uh,
1: yeah yeah pretty much well i mean Obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Obviously, but... yeah.
0: <laughs> and I mean, I mean yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure Darren Aronofsky does not like to do things simply.
0: No, yeah, and well, I mean, if you've seen Mother, then he he likes to cram like all these metaphors into the movie. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, unbearable lightness of being. Um, if you're if If you're an english major you've probably read the milan kundera novel so yeah basically it's about a doctor and um he fucks too much during the prague spring period which is in the which is in 1968 between you know when czechoslovakia basically had a more like liberal socialist uh, government before the warsaw pact basically came in and it's like to the gulag to everybody oh god and yeah um well i I don't think there's the element of the novel where um they focus on the dog too in the movie but yeah basically the relationship between daniel day lewis and uh lena olin and uh juliette binoche uh yeah (laughs) Uh,
1: juliette binoche what she still looks amazing even she still looks amazing even to this day
0: yeah. What's she been in recently?
1: Juliette Binoche? Yeah. Um let me see. Um hmm. Let us see, shall we? Her last films have included Oh my god, she was in Ghosts in the Shell.
0: Really? Unless I yes. missed that.
1: <laughs> she played a Doctor Willette?
0: okay she was in godzilla
1: she was in godzilla apparently okay she was in clouds of silmaria oh she was in the 33 that's the one about uh the chilean miners right
0: yeah um i feel like the last thing i really remember her in was uh well (laughs) 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 chocolate
1: well yeah i mean for most mainstream uh American audiences that's the yeah pretty much the last thing they saw her and I remember seeing her in that movie uh, Dan in real life okay the one with uh, Steve Carell
0: oh okay yeah yeah Um,
1: be honest they actually had some pretty good uh, chemistry between the two of them
0: okay well um, good to see she's still uh, she's still out there Apparently she's Absolutely. got she's got a couple of she's got a couple of movies out in the pipeline too. Hmm. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm oversimplifying the unbearable lightness of being, and it is like one of the books I did like reading <laughs> in high school, <laughs> and one of the one of the movies I did like seeing. So I am doing a massive disservice to like this beautiful like. I mean, basically, uh, you know, the uh, what is this genre of movie, you would say?
1: (sighs) Hmm. Somewhere on the lines between romantic and philosophical.
0: Yeah, it kind of straddles the line between, you know, like there's there's the obvious romantic drama between uh tomas and uh the two women he sleeps with but also it's like yeah, he's it's Sabina, yeah. yeah he's like meditating on you know basically his his life
1: absolutely he is he's a man that has to deal with uh you know like what's gonna happen to him and his uh his profession you know you know once the warsaw pact uh, happens once all those tanks come running through uh, through Czechoslovakia during, uh, during the Prague spring. But he's a man who, I I don't know. You obviously know this, uh, the book and the film a lot, a lot more than I do. Is he a guy that, uh, that does he like obviously oppose the uh, Soviet uh, influence in Czechoslovakia?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, he's, I mean, Broadly, you'd call his character socialist, but that's it's different from like the Soviet-style Warsaw Pact communism, which is, um, well, uh, if you've seen pictures from mid twentieth century, you see all these tanks and parades and shit, and that's the that's the flavor of communism of the yeah. Soviets. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. I don't really want to spoil how the movie ends and how the book ends. Um, it is kind of sad, but that's um, that's the kind of movie and uh, book it is when, you know, you mix philosoph- philosophizing with romance.
1: I feel like this is a film that uh, Roberto Benigni took a lot of influence from. Oh, definitely. When he made uh, Life is Beautiful.
0: Definitely, yeah. And I mean, it's kind of a hack bit, but it's is every person in Brooklyn's favorite movie.
1: <laughs> really, I thought their favorite movie was Saturday Night Fever.
0: Maybe, um, I, well, maybe that's for. I guess this is more for like the Bushwick types.
1: Oh, more more hipsterish. Yeah, it's
0: the kind of people who are on girls.
1: Okay. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. I see. <laughs> did, did they discuss that a lot in Girls? The uh, the unbearable lightness of being.
0: To be honest, probably not. Um, I can't remember <laughs> what they, what actually happens on the show. Besides, yeah, someone took a camera to a privileged woman's apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> Although I did like Adam Driver on that show. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Such humble beginnings for Kylo Ren.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Who also shared a screen with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis on Lincoln. But we'll get to that later.
1: That's right. And we'll get to that eventually. But first, let's go back to the role that basically... Made well, maybe didn't make his career, but gained him the recognition, the final recognition that he deserved in order to be considered, like, you know, very popular. And that's My Left Foot,
0: yeah. And this is basically the um, this is the movie that basically confirmed what a nightmare it is to work with a method actor.
1: <laughs> oh my god, yes. So, this is the first film where Daniel Day-Lewis really unveils to the cast and crew, much to their eventual horror, his uh, quote-unquote method. (laughs) And that he plays a guy named Christy Brown, real-life guy, by the way. It's a biographical film. Uh, Christy Brown was a guy who was born with uh, cerebral palsy, and he discovers that the only way he can actually, you know, move at all is by using his left foot. And he actually uses his left foot to write and to paint and he ultimately becomes you know very successful mm-hmm. at it. And when Daniel Day Lewis took the role, he decided to fully inhabit the role of Christy Brown, including but not limited to uh, remaining in a wheelchair. Uh, every day during production for about two months and insisting that people carry him when he was in the wheelchair.
0: Basically, um, he also does not, like, really talk or do anything except, you know, using his left foot to paint. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, it. Daniel Day-Lewis basically refused to break character for for the movie. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, pretty much. And it's interesting because uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is predominantly uh, right-handed, and the scenes where you actually see him, you know, using the left foot were actually done uh, with a mirror.
0: Yeah. So my right foot.
1: So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, it, I guess it's, uh, colloquially referred to as my right foot. Mm-hmm. And there were several rumors going around that, uh, he actually, uh, broke, uh, two of his ribs because he was in the wheelchair in that hunched over position yeah. for so long, but, but he denied it. Mm
0: hmm. I mean all kinds of wild rumors can start when you're on set with a method actor mm-hmm. which Absolutely. again <laughs> we will come we will come to it later
1: <laughs> We'll get to that and obviously the movie takes a lot of uh, you know takes a lot of liberties with the life of uh, of Christie Brown because what most people don't actually know, is that the woman he eventually falls in love with, and gets married to, mm-hmm. winds up becoming incredibly abusive towards him?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a twist ending.
1: That they don't show in the movie. Mm-hmm. They show the final scene. in The movie is that you know he asks out uh, his uh, his nurse, his, his handler, uh, asks her out on a date, and she says yes, and they leave this party together like very triumphantly. Music swells, the end, da da da. Of course, typical mm. Hollywood happy ending.
0: Yeah. I mean if you wanna if you wanna read about it, uh, there's uh the there's another biography of Christy Brown, uh, and the life that inspired my left foot. Um yeah. Uh <laughs> uh brown's own brother uh said christy loved her but it wasn't reciprocated because she wasn't that kind of person if she loved him like uh-huh. she said she did she wouldn't have had affairs with both men and women i feel like she took advantage of him in more ways than one oh so yeah
1: <laughs> so she's an asshole
0: yeah what a what a twist yeah well, I think it's also uh, what's that? Uh, a beautiful mind, the one about uh, Thomas Nash. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah that he one. He is an
0: incredibly abusive person in real life.
1: Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Same can be said for uh, PT Barnum in the in the Greatest Showman.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> PT Barnum uh, was he the one with like uh, the black dwarf in a cage? Uh, yeah, that was him. Yeah, um, the what is it? I think that's uh-huh. that's what the exhibition was called.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's it. That's incredible, man. Just the things you were allowed to get away with back in the day, right? Like it, like uh, like in all these like world expos in like uh, Paris or Brussels or uh, Berlin. They'd have they'd, like they mm-hmm. transport villages from the colonies and like have the people, like live butt ass oh naked god. in Europe. And it's like oh look yeah. at the look at the primitive, uh, the oh the so stupid.
1: Yeah. Oh my god! No, it's because everybody was the pe the crowds of of England of France of Germany of Vienna. Of Italy you know they were quote-unquote fascinated by the unknown by the yeah. uh, by the dark continent yeah as it were the dark and even though continent. Like, and like these these were actors that were hired. these were people that pt barnum picked up from from chicago from new york who were just living normal lives yeah and he said i'll pay you x, he said i'll pay you x amount of money to act like a act like a stereotypical slave
0: yeah i think there was basically a um uh a black man with microcephaly who P.T. Barnum put in like the Bronx zoo in the same oh cage God. as an orangutan.
1: Oh my God. No. Oh my God. Oh my God. He did. He did. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> yeah. I bet you they didn't put that in the greatest showman.
1: No, no, they did not. <laughs> God damn it. And the music's so good too.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that's, um, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't really want to get into it, but yeah, um, <laughs> let's go back to DDL and I guess the, the, the next big thing, which is also the classic, the classic movie where all these other stories popped up about him and his method acting last of oh. the Mohicans.
1: Yes. But, but first I just want to say you know, just quick side note about my left foot. Uh, that was his first uh, Oscar win. Yes, that was his first Oscar win. It certainly won't be his last.
0: Yep.
1: But you're right. On to Last of the Mohicans, which he plays the uh, the white adopted son of a uh, Mohican chief, Chingachgook. Yeah. I. Really hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, then I apologize.
0: Yeah, this is um, I mean, this is based on the novel um, written a million years ago by James Fenmore Cooper. That's right. Um, yeah, it's basically the genre of, like, um, I guess the white frontiersman who, I, I, yeah. who somehow, like, you know, is... Uh, is like affiliated with the engines, but not of engine blood. Like, I think in the movie, they say like there's not a drop of engine in him. And I'm saying engine right. because I think that's what they actually like say in the novel.
1: So, yeah, yeah. I guess that's Michael Mint Ma- I guess that's Michael Mann being, uh, he's, he's the guy who wrote and directed the movie. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's Michael <laughs> Mann being, uh, being faithful. To the original source material?
0: I guess. Um, but yeah. Uh, classic, you know, I guess Tarzan, like wild man conquers, uh, white man conquers the wilds type of archetype.
1: Something like that. But it's the only film I know of that's set during the French and Indian War.
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, for a war that basically led to the creation of the United States. It's not really popular.
1: (laughs) Oh. And you you know why it's not popular? Because uh, when when it was over, the British just said, okay, you helped us out. You helped us out uh, during the war. Now pay for everything. That's true. And... uh, and they basically said to the uh, the Native American population, "Yeah, we'll just take your land right yeah. now. We'll just start taking <laughs> your lands right now." Way before, like you know, people like Andrew Jackson,
2: you know, yeah. gotten
1: uh, got involved. They just said, "Yeah, we'll just we'll, we'll take your lands. Yeah, you're you're not important enough." But what I appreciate about *Last of the Mohicans* is that I feel like it's one of the first films I've seen that actually, you know, portrays. Native Americans in a positive light.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it also has uh, a lot of people with Native American, uh, of Native American descent in the movie, like, you know, West uh Russell Russell Means, Means, of course, uh, Mm -hmm. not just an actor, but also key figure in the American Indian movement.
1: Absolutely. He was there. At a at Little Rock during yeah. the nineteen seventies, when the FBI literally fired upon them yeah. every single day for like two months straight.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, R.I.P. Russell Means.
1: Uh, R.I.P. Russell Means. But yeah, but yes, Last of the Mohicans is Daniel Day Lewis's movie, and his uh, method. The method to his madness only increases from here.
0: Yeah, um, this is where all the the rumors, you know, of him like living off the land, which are mostly true, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, they they are, they are for the most part. He actually did live off. (laughs) He actually did live off the land. He uh, hunted and fished. He actually used the. He used to go spear fishing.
0: Yeah, skinned a bunch of rabbits for sure. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, basically lived out like what I guess a frontiersman would would live like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Good for him if that's the way he wants to get into a get into his character. Then you know what? More power to him.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, basically the, the plot of the movie is, um,
1: strap in people. Cause this movie is, oh, it's not as long as I thought it was. I thought it was like an over three hours film because it's Michael Mann, but no, yeah. apparently not. It's less than two hours.
0: You know, it might've been cause like it came out a while back and it just felt very long,
1: <laughs> right? So the movie, like I said, takes place during the French and Indian War, and it involves this uh, this British army major, who uh, is actually uh, is tasked with escorting this uh, colonel's uh, uh, two daughters across uh, across the land in uh, in Albany in the Adirondack Mountains, and they are attacked by uh, a bu- bunch of French troops and their Native American allies, but are saved at the last minute by the Mohican chief, uh, Cook, his son, Uncas, and Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Hawkeye.
0: hmm What a name. Yeah.
1: And, of course, it takes place during the war and involves, you know, the struggles on both sides to gain the, uh, the upper hand. And, uh, of course, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, falls in love with one of the, uh, the colonel's daughters, because Lord knows we can't have uh, an actual Native American falling in love with a white character.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) I mean, they did the same thing on Dances with Wolves, too.
0: That's true. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, that's a twist ending to The Sheik, was that um, eventually Valentino's character was revealed to be just like a foundling white baby that was adopted by, I think it was an Egyptian guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably because, uh, <laughs> because miscegenation is bad. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So, um, who who are the bad guys in the movie? Um,
1: oh, well, there's uh, Magua. Yeah, there was, was West the, Studi's
0: uh, character.
1: That's West Studi's character. He fights for the uh, the French side.
0: Yeah. And uh, there there was a French general.
1: The French general, uh, General Louis-Joseph jo- de Montcalm. Oh. <laughs> who, who I think was an actual general. Ah, yes, he was. Yeah. Who was killed during the French and Indian War, so, mm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, and it eventually turns out that... Uh, um <clears throat> I don't really know how to describe it it's been a long time since I've seen the <laughs> film
0: yeah um I don't know what else uh well I guess you know there's a the famous uh and like last few minutes of the movie where uncas and uh, magwa eventually... Um fight in hand to hand combat uh mm-hmm. and of course, there's the speech uh well, I guess it I don't know it, um yeah, uh Achuk uh speaks with the great spirit and uh yeah, calls himself the last of the Mohicans, and uh, talks about That's his great. white son, <laughs> which is uh weird, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah but hey like you know that was how uh, James Fenimore Cooper wrote it
0: yeah um, it's also got some uh, some pretty some pretty cool people in, in bit roles or less prominent roles I mean there's Pete Posslethwaite uh, mm-hmm. Cole Meaney, uh Jared Harris
1: Jared Harris nice
0: yeah <laughs> who um <laughs> Would later also be in Lincoln, but that's think, right.
1: He plays Grant.
0: Yeah, but I think most people remember him as the British guy from Mad Men.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Um, I actually liked him as Moriarty in the in the. Um, oh, he was
1: good. Yeah, he was good in that. Yeah, in the Robert Downey Journal.
0: Uh, Rob. Yeah Robert
1: Robert Downey Journal. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to change his name now.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I am now I am now Robert Downey Journal. I am an open book. Yeah.
0: And words are hard folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, uh yeah, so that's the last of the Mohicans. Um, and I think uh, the early '90s also gave him a couple of other roles. Um, that's right. Of course, *Age of Innocence* and *In the Name of the Father*.
1: Oh, *In the Name of the Father* is actually kind of kind of legendary. Yeah, he plays he plays a guy who's uh, falsely accused of uh, blowing up this. Uh, this pub, yeah. which killed in Ireland, which kills four off-duty British uh, soldiers, and the, his father is a for, is a member of the uh, is, a, uh, is he or I think he's a former member of the IRA. Yeah, I
0: think he's who, he was former member of, uh, former IRA. Member of the IRA.
1: And it really explores the tensions between you know the British community and the, and the Irish community at a time when Ireland had not yet like physically. Declared for uh, independence yet from the uh, from the UK, mm-hmm. but Daniel Day Lewis's preparation in this film involved not just losing fifty pounds uh, to his already uh, skinny frame, but he actually spent three days and nights in a jail cell.
0: Yeah, and he was prevented from sleeping by (laughs) people who would bang (laughs) on his cell, basically. And he put himself through interrogation uh, three times.
1: Wow. Three times. Three different teams. (laughs) (laughs) And he also insisted that the crew uh, throw uh, cold water on him and and verbally abuse him. Yeah.
0: And, of course, the least remarkable thing of all that is that he insisted in keeping his Northern Irish accent offset. Um, for other actors, keeping the accent would probably the probably be the hard part, but for Daniel Day-Lewis, it was Tuesday.
1: <laughs> for you, it was the greatest day of your life. For me, <laughs> it was Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> no, was... but in addition to it, uh... Ah sorry. Yeah. Rest in peace, Raul Julia. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there was a string of these like um movies about um oh no, it's not really troubles, but like uh the the Ireland conflict, wasn't there in like the nineties or eighties?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. There was um there was this film, there was uh The Devil's Zone, yeah, there was uh the Jackal.
0: Yeah. There's a crying game to, that counts, right?
1: Crying game counts, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. It was it was part of that string of movies, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is one of his <laughs> one of the most uh, remarkable anecdotes of uh, DDL going to great lengths, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> staying in character. Uh, yeah, by contrast, I guess, Age of Innocence, um, it's not as much crazy stories. Um, this was just him being like a 19th century uh, New York rich guy.
1: Just being a dandy, yeah, really.
0: Basically, yeah, yeah. Dandy-ing and his a name ever. is a Newland Archer, so he, for sure he is a dandy.
1: Even his name basically says, I have a lot of money. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he didn't really go to too much, too many extremes during that. I think during the filming of that, he just, uh, like w- he just, uh, wore a 1870s, uh, period, uh, aristocratic clothing in New York for two months.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I guess that's not that much different from how he usually is. I guess. <laughs> um, I
1: guess, but walking around New York for two months—imagine like, walking around for New York two months during the summer, wearing a, a top hat, tails, and, can- and a cane. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, like in a in a penguin suit, basically. <laughs>
1: pretty much like a skinny penguin.
0: Uh. I actually had no idea this was a Scorsese movie.
1: <laughs> Me neither. I, I guess sometime between uh, between Goodfellas and Casino, I guess he found time to make this.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: oh, yeah. Th- yeah, he also made a, a Cape Fear yeah, yeah, yeah. around that time.
0: Well, I think it's just so different from what he usually makes. Right. Like... Th- like, I guess there's not really any, like, super fucked up elements about it. Exactly. But, yeah. Um, we're moving on to probably another one that is most associated with DDL. Uh, 1996's The Crucible. And, of course, this yes. is the adaptation of the Arthur Miller play, On the Salem Witch Trials.
1: Which Uh, Arthur Miller actually... He wrote the script for this as well. He was still alive. Yeah. yeah. At this time.
0: Um, And... Boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. DDL's uh, methodness really got to its peak here. Because he actually... Built a house for himself using the tools from the 1690s, if you can believe it.
0: Yeah, um, because really, how else are you going to be John Proctor without (laughs) building your own fucking (laughs) cabin?
1: Pretty much, yeah. I guess he gained a lot of experience in that cabin as it really helped him with the role of Lincoln.
0: Yeah. Um that's probably why he ended up being Lincoln. It's just like, "Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm intimately familiar with the workings of a log cabin."
1: That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh it's also this movie also has an incredible cast. <laughs> Oh, my Uh, God, yes. Winona Ryder, um, Paul Schofield, Joan Allen, uh, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Jones.
1: Uh, Less said about Jeffrey Jones, the better.
0: Uh, Bruce Davison. Uh, But, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: And, yeah, I don't know anybody else besides who you just mentioned right now.
0: I don't know. Uh, there there's been a there's been a few other adaptations of The Crucible but I think this one is uh the one most people have seen. And I mean, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is great as John Proctor. So
1: Absolutely.
0: Yay. he um you know <laughs> I guess uh building that fucking cabin actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and i guess i don't really have to get into it um i think everyone's read this play in high school so Mm -hmm. yeah basically the witch trials uh were an allegory for the anti-communism fever in the in the The 50s. 50s um arthur miller went through that i think miller also had to testify I think he did, um, but yeah, he did. You know, um, <laughs> Elia Kazan famously sold out <laughs> people.
1: Everybody, he yeah. sold out everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: and that destroyed his friendship with uh, Arthur Miller.
1: Well, the problem with the uh, you know the HUAC testimony, you know, the House Un-American Activities Committee, was basically damned if you do, damned if you don't yeah basically like you know if you're willing to it's like if you're willing to name names you know then nobody will ever speak to you again Mm -hmm. but if you're not willing to name names your career might be over so it's kind of a catch-22
0: that's true um who else was a pretty famous figure at the time i think um who's the guy that wrote spartacus
1: oh dalton trumbo yeah
0: um, he was famously blacklisted. Um, oh my god! And he couldn't, was he ever? He couldn't attach his name to any of the scripts he wrote. So,
1: or yeah. if he did, he had to attach it under a pseudonym.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were those were wild times.
1: Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> it's actually also the second Red Scare. The first Red Scare was um. Just around the time when uh, the Russian Revolution happened, and um, yeah, the mm-hmm. the threat of Bolshevism was probably more more pronounced. It w- it targeted more people, in, like the communist movement, the anarchist movement, and the early American labor movement. Meanwhile, yeah. the nineteen fifties uh, Red Scare. I guess it was more about like the the subversive elements in uh what they perceived as radical leftism so
1: yeah it's
0: uh spooky Ooh,
1: yes they're coming over they're coming to take over Ooh,
0: yeah it's funny um that i guess people associate um i don't know hollywood with like i don't know i guess cultural marxism or whatever but i mean throughout the film industry's existence there there's been ups and downs of like hyper patriotism and non-patriotic output so right yeah but um yeah the crucible um let's uh let's move on to his next role um the boxer where of course Mm -hmm. as he is <laughs> As you would expect by now he did take up boxing. So
1: Oh my god, yes, he did. He
0: again, this is a I guess this is a return to his roots. He plays another um Irishman, but this time he actually was a his character actually was a former IRA member. Uh-huh. So, yeah. He he comes home after being in jail mm-hmm. and uh he ends up. Uh, he ends up starting out a boxing club in his old in his old gym with. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have to prefix this with um, alcoholic because this is set in Ireland. But yes, an a- alcoholic <laughs> trainer, uh, Ike.
1: <laughs> Ike, yes. At its heart, it's really about a guy who's trying to uh, to go straight after his time in prison.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, he's um, he's trying to get his life back, and then circumstances happen where um kind of draws his old life back in. Like, he's fixing up the building, and then he finds, like, a cache of bombs, and he's, like, throwing that shit in the river, and eventually the the ex... I was he an ex-IRA guy, or I, I think the... the uh, dr- uh, the, I think he was still in the IRA, right? The, I guess right. the, 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 antagonist character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. He, yeah. He is a bitter and ruthless IRA Lieutenant.
0: Yeah. So mm-hmm. there you go. Um,
1: and you no, know, he could, he reconnects with, uh, an old flame of his and he's trying to do all he, uh, he can to get out. From the IRA, trying to undermine the authority of his father, played brilliantly by, uh, under the authority of her father, Mm -hmm. played brilliantly by Brian Cox. Yeah. Um, And eventually, he's a he's kidnapped by the antagonist by the IRA lieutenant, and you know what? I'm I'm not going to reveal the ending because I want you. I want you guys to go see this film for yourself. It's actually quite good and vastly underrated when it comes to Daniel Day-Lewis' work.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it, it it really shines through when he's, like, in the boxing scenes. Yeah. And uh, this was also directed by My Left Foot and In the Name of the Father director, uh, Jim Sheridan. That's right. Um. And I think uh, the script was also by Terry George, who wrote um, "In the Name of the Father." That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know why. But, I don't. Know, I don't know why it's not as discussed for like you know with respect to um, Daniel Day-Lewis's other roles.
1: Well, that's because his, his next film was so extraordinary that people kind of forgot about his other stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. You have
1: to understand, people, that after he did The Boxer, this was the first of his many uh, quote-unquote retirements that he took. He uh, eventually, he moved to Italy and became an apprentice uh, to a shoemaker.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He lived there for a long time lived there for about like five years or so and it got to the point where no one actually knew where he was or what he was up to
0: yeah it's um it's a period where more or less he became a recluse mm-hmm. and uh eventually five years later he came back and yeah boy did he come uh, back
1: <laughs> he came back at the behest of Martin Scorsese to play the supremely villainous Bill the Butcher Cutting in Gangs of New York. Yes. Which, I'll be perfectly honest with you, has one of my favorite... (laughs) Has one of my favorite lines that he's ever delivered. And it's like this very like oldish New York accent Mm -hmm. that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis does. I'll try and give it, Some justice, but Mm. I don't think I can. He's like, you know, he says, he says this to Leo DiCaprio's character. Mm. He's like, here's the thing I don't give a tuppany fuck about your moral conundrum, you meat headed shit sack. That's more (laughs) or less the thing. And I want you to go out there. You, nobody else, none of your little minions. I want you to go out there. And I want you to punish the person who's responsible for murdering this poor little rabbit. Mm-hmm. is that understood? <laughs> <laughs> I love that line so much because you can really see the ruthlessness of this character. Mhm.
0: Yeah, this was um this is a movie about like old ass New York.
1: Old ass New York. 5 points.
0: 5 points which doesn't exist anymore.
1: It does not. <laughs> it's basically where the Bowery is right now. or the Yeah, Lower where East the side. Bowery
0: is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a period of tenement housing, the period of nativism, which mm-hmm. um, really shines through in Bill the Butcher's character. Uh-huh. And yeah, uh, of course, there is Boss Tweed, the infamous Boss Tweed.
1: The infamous Boss Tweed with that... Uh... The big-ass mustache.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tammany oh, Hall.
1: Oh, yes. That's right. It was the beginning of the Tammany Hall influence over New York that would last for the next, uh, God, I think, like 70, 80 years.
0: Yeah, it was It was extremely influential in New York politics for almost a century. hmm But, and, yeah. Uh,
1: But, yeah, basically the premise of the story is a Leo DiCaprio character. uh, His name is uh, Amsterdam Valen. Mm -hmm. And his story is he wants revenge on Bill the Butcher Cutting for killing his father back in the day. Yeah. And it's basically a clash between uh, old New York, I guess you could – kinda of consider it, you know, you know, New Amsterdam at the time and what would eventually become New York between uh uh Daniel day Lewis and his nativist crew and Leo DiCaprio and his uh what what would you call his crew per se?
0: I think it was mostly like uh Irish Catholic, right? Or like yeah. more recent immigrants. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, this... Uh, and, yeah. And that includes uh, that includes people who are Italian, Jewish, Black, Native American.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it kind of starts out as kind of like a Irish gang and then eventually grew into a more, I, I guess, immigrants against racist <laughs> gangs.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. But... I feel like because he was gone for so long, because he was gone for five years, mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis had thought to himself, okay, people know me for my method acting. How can I ratchet it up even more? And he did this by uh, <laughs> becoming an apprentice to a butcher, mm-hmm. literally becoming an apprentice to a butcher. And he hired... <laughs> a circus performers to teach him how to how to throw knives it got to the point where it was so cold where they were filming that he was diagnosed with pneumonia but being the true method actor that he is he Mm -hmm. uh refused to wear a a warmer coat or take treatment because it was not in keeping with the period (laughs) so yeah he could have died on that set
0: yeah yeah and um I mean we'll we'll probably talk about this more when we talk about um Lincoln but yeah they really paid attention to the speech patterns and the accents because you know that's a very major plot point in oh, yeah. period it's a very right. it's a very distinct marker of who you are and where your loyalties lie so mm-hmm. they did work hard on um reconstructing that kind of like nativist accent and then giving DiCaprio a I don't even know what to call it accent
1: (laughs) it's oh god it's DiCaprio it was four years before he did The Departed so I feel like he's trying to do uh, New York with a mix of Southie Boston in there but also trying to be somewhat Irish I'm not sure yeah
0: because I think the justification was like um He's the son of Irish immigrants, but I mean, he grew up mm-hmm. like an orphan in New York. So it was, a, it was it was a mix kind of accent. It was it it it, it sounds bizarre.
1: It's incredibly bizarre. The only <laughs> Irish there were how many Irish people were in that? I think uh, Liam Neeson yeah, Brendan, Brendan yeah was in it, and Brendan Brendan Gleeson was in it. As a Monk McGinn,
0: (laughs) yeah, the old the Uh, old timey gangster names.
1: That's right, (laughs) Monk McGinn. Yeah. Uh, Oh God, but I'll. uh, Can I just say that I think Cameron Diaz looked out of place in this film?
0: Yeah, really out of place.
1: It's like, uh, you're. I know you're trying, but. Yeah, can uh, Can we get someone else in here?
0: Hmm. <laughs> oh, man. And yeah, eventually, because uh, it's a historical event, it's not a spoiler. Um, mm-hmm. co- the movie culminates basically in the draft day riots.
1: Oh, yes.
0: And that is, that is actually quite a sight to see.
1: Absolutely. absolutely that was intense just watching that scene alone
0: mm-hmm. this is one of scorsese's uh, finest moments i would say
1: yeah but it, it was weird it's kind of strange because it was uh basically it was done it was done for two reasons the draft riots uh they were obviously it was between two sides it was between a lot of you know mostly Irish or Irish-American drafters Mm -hmm. and uh, free black men, actually. The Irish-Americans feared that that free black men would be competing for their work, but the Irishmen also resented the fact that a lot of wealthier men could actually pay for a, a substitute to go fight in the war for them. And it got to the point where after... The riots, which you, you could actually consider a race riot, that many, the most of the black population in the in Manhattan actually ended up leaving and moving down to Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, basically.
1: hmm
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those um, key events in the American Civil War, I would say.
1: But it's not. It's not really one that a lot of people talk about in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you talk about. You know, you talk about the attack on Fort Sumter. You talk about the Emancipation Proclamation. You talk about Gettysburg. You Mm -hmm. talk about uh, Sherman burning Atlanta and the March to the Sea. You talk about the surrender at Appomattox. And you talk about Lincoln's assassination. Yeah. This is one of those events that kind of gets lost in the shuffle.
0: Yeah. I feel like. But, you know, I mean, it really does completely change the demographic of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It, It completely, like a lot of the well established black community really had to leave the city to brooklyn to um well yeah queens queens and i don't i don't think they really moved to harlem it, it wasn't really a black uh area yet i don't think
1: no they they moved to most of them moved to jersey
0: yeah prior to to this event the racial makeup in well for sure in lower manhattan was much different than it is today Mm -hmm. but yeah well i guess if you're a specialist historian in demographics or uh, history of race in america it's Mm -hmm. um you talk about this event a lot but for the general public um yeah i guess history of race relations ends starts and ends with uh MLK so
1: <laughs> if you want to oversimplify things yes
0: yeah well um, <laughs> between gangs of New York and this next movie he he did a a little movie called The Ballad of Jack and Rose um, Yes. not about the Titanic
1: no 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 <laughs> No it's uh, uh, no it's a movie about a, an environmentalist
0: yeah. and
1: his uh, teenage daughter who live on a secluded island uh, commune. Um, he plays a, a dying man who regrets over how his life had evolved and over how he had brought up his teenage daughter. Yeah yeah <laughs> And it, the method comes back. He actually he arranged to live separately from his wife in order to achieve the isolation he needed to focus on the character's reality.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we've been talking about how difficult it is to, to work with a me- method actor. But imagine being in a relationship yeah. with one.
1: Now, imagine having to explain to your wife or to your husband <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's, that it's like, okay, honey, I, I have this role. I just got this role. Great film, great film. Uh, I'm going to have to live separately from you for the next uh, six to seven months.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, the other thing I remember from the movie was that the daughter was really hot.
1: Oh, Camilla Bell. Yes.
0: Um, yeah. Other than that, I don't really remember. Uh,
1: yeah, that's. It's kind of it. It's one of those kind of forgetful films that he somehow happened to be in. You know how you know how every actor always has you know those films when you like you're scrolling through Netflix and you come across a random film that just happens to have a a famous actor in it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like, hi, must be needing a paycheck.
1: Well, I mean, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. He doesn't necessarily do it for the paycheck.
0: Probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, at this, especially in the 2000s, he, he's at that level where he really, he's he's super selective of what he does. And um, yeah, moving on from The Ballad of Jack and Rose to There Will Be Blood, who um, a movie that disappointingly does not have that much blood, actually.
1: no i think it's uh, i think the title it's kind of open-ended that way because it's Mm. heavily implied but you don't actually see it yeah
0: well i mean you you know
1: guessing the whole time
0: you know i mean like the context probably means that you know like it's just the cutthroat nature of the southern california oil boom but yeah Uh i mean based on the poster what what kind of movie did you think you were going to see
1: Right, right. There's literally an oil mill, yeah, in the background, and Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview, just sitting there, just looking at it, like you know, yeah. Yes, I have, I have all this money from the <laughs> oil.
0: Yeah, um. <laughs> and my favorite, and my what favorite line in in the movie, which uh, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Um, but yeah, basically, this is a movie about the SoCal oil boom, um, more or less inspired by an Upton Sinclair novel. But yeah, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays a prospector who eventually discovers oil near Los Angeles and establishes a drilling company. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, just the just the tactics and the cutthroat nature of the industry and the incredibly ruthless nature of Daniel Plainview is a uh, source of our enjoyment of the movie.
1: I well, I guess enjoyment slash horror becomes he becomes downright terrifying. Yeah. at times he becomes like the uh, the J. Paul Getty of his era, who no matter how much how big a fortune he has gotten over the years mm-hmm. he's still not satisfied
0: yeah yeah you know um and that's really the arc the arc of the movie where he continuously gets more and more successful and yet he alienates everyone around him uh-huh so uh the the foil I guess to Daniel Plainview is Paul Dano's character uh twin brothers Paul and Eli Sunday who um
1: and Paul is kind of a minor role but it's really Eli that serves yeah. as the as the foil he's the uh like the local uh, religious leader mm-hmm. who uh, demands a uh, $10,000 from uh, <laughs> yeah, from uh, Daniel Plainview who wants to buy this farm, mm-hmm. but he demands ten thousand dollars and states that it's for the church. Yeah, yeah. "Quote unquote." Yeah. I feel like this is a movie that really—it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. I feel like this is a movie that really plays into the religious uh, hypocrisy that's so that still permeates uh, modern society today.
0: I mean, one of the points is that um, Eli. Um, he he's a local preacher man, but he's not an altruistic character.
1: No, no, and you really see that develop through Paul Dano's uh, portrayal of him. He plays him almost like a like a coward. Yeah, almost yeah. a man, a man who can talk, talk a big game, but when the time comes to actually take action, he does nothing mm-hmm. about it, and it really paints a picture his portrayal really paints a picture into how religious hypocrisy worked even then, because towards the end of the film, uh, Daniel, uh, agree, Daniel agrees to sell, uh, you know, part of his land to, uh, Eli on the condition that, uh, that Eli denounces his faith and his credibility, which he does, which he does, albeit reluctantly, mm-hmm. which goes to prove that he's, Not the pious man you would expect him to be, yeah. You know, from the beginning of the film, Mm -hmm. he's a man who, uh, if he were alive today, he'd be a a televangelist or and a really shady televangelist, you know, giving his sermon to thousands of people inside giant uh, arenas and living off living in private jets.
0: That scene at the end of the movie, uh. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so f- first um Eli uh he does end up being like an early form of the televangelist, like he's a radio preacher at the end. And okay. um yeah, I mean, he becomes this kind of grifter as well who's in financial straits and who is um who is um, a really hollow kind of character. So, mm-hmm. he visits Daniel in his mansion, um, who which has a private bowling alley. Uh, this will be important, of course. It does. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so he offers to sell the land that uh, Daniel wanted to buy earlier, and Daniel agrees in the condition that Eli denounces faith and credibility, and he does it, but the coup de grace is Daniel's already extracted all the oil from that land years ago because he did you know a little something called slant drilling which is you Mm -hmm. technically don't build the 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 platform on the property but you just Mm -hmm. direct it to the other person's property so the oil you can still attract extract the oil without, um, uh, well, it's a really shady practice, but yeah, it it technically does not infringe on the other person's property. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird legal technicality and it's part of like the teapot dome scandal, which is another, um, it's another, uh, big ass thing in American history. But yeah, um, when he's basically berating Paul Dano, and Paul Dano's crying, <laughs> he's like, "I drank your milkshake." <laughs> I drink it up. I drank that- it all up, and he's just like, you know, <laughs> he t- t- basically the metaphor is that his straw is the oil platform, and the milkshake That's is a oil, right. and he's just like, <sighs> all of the valuable shit has been extracted and it's just like for me right. it's the contrast between him saying i drank your milkshake in like a completely serious tone and face Right. and like paul dano's uh-huh. crying and it's just like for me that's like hilarious
1: it's a classic example of kicking a guy while he's down yeah
0: yeah yeah and it's then like, of course
1: you know, oh oh you're, you're crying you're crying to me because uh you're crying to me because you have no money and you like know, you don't have anywhere to go, that kind of thing. Well, too fucking bad, asshole.
0: Yeah. And then um, <laughs> eventually uh, <laughs> he chases Eli around and beats him to death with a
1: bowling pin. And uh, movie's Most over. Most conventional weapon ever. Yeah. In order to get into his character this time around, he doesn't go to quite as extreme as uh, as gangs in New York. No, he just uh, he did a lot of research regarding the uh, the Teapot Dome scandal of 1923. Um, he uh, got he was able to get uh, recordings of several uh, uh, senators mm-hmm. from that era, and he based his voice around the director of uh, director John Huston, mm. who spoke in a very Deep and resonant tone, almost like this. Yeah, and, and he took and he uh, took inspiration from the film, uh, the Tre- the treasure of a Sierra Madre, which involve which also involves around uh, you know greed and ambition and impara- and paranoia and you know money turning you into a complete dick.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Um... You were expecting him to actually like prospect. Um <laughs> Yeah, kinda of disappointing. But still.
1: I, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put him past him to do that, but I'm glad he didn't.
0: <laughs> I did um you know, this is a really uh this is a really fine role for him.
1: Yes, I agree. And it got him his uh, his second Oscar.
0: Mm-hmm. And it did win best picture too, so
1: it Wait, did win Best no, Picture
0: that no. year. Um, let's see. There's also the relationship between uh, Plainview and um, his uh, adopted son. Who, yeah. Who becomes deaf.
1: Comes deaf because of an accident. Well, mm-hmm. he took him in. He took in his adopted son ostensibly because one of his workers was a uh, was killed in an explosion. Mm
0: -hmm. And, uh, well, you know, uh, it's a a purely uh, business move so he can, like, portray himself as a family man. And there's also the part in the movie where uh, his son comes back and uh, Daniel also berates him. So yeah, this is uh, uh, uh I mean I guess it's basically uh Daniel Day Lewis in like peak asshole role.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I think it culminates with his uh his next film or or it kind of I don't know. He's not quite an asshole in his next film, he's more of a very uh, very controlling. I'll say that yeah yeah and like the ro- the movie we're talking about is the uh, musical uh, nine which is a very very loose adaptation of Fellini's uh, eight and a half
0: yeah um it's one of those movies where um you go down the cast list it's kind of it's kind of weird
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and also it wasn't very successful.
1: Hey, every actor has to have a flop here and there. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, looking at this cast, it's insane who they managed to get from Nicole Kidman to Penelope Cruz to Marion Cotillard to Sophia Loren. It's ridiculous.
0: I think this was... uh... The first time I saw Marion Cotillard, I think.
1: It might have been. It might have been because only like a year or two before she did uh, La Vie en Rose, Mm. where she played uh, Edith Piaf.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, (laughs) how do you describe Guido Contini?
1: Uh (laughs) Uh, He is a very uh, paranoid man suffering from a case of writer's block. Yeah. That's how I would accurately describe him, who keeps having visions of all the women in his life, from his wife to his mother to his costume designer to his mistress to uh, a prostitute he knew as a child.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's kind of interesting the relationship he shares with with all of them I mean he still loves you know each and every all he still loves all of them but in his own like unique way Mm -hmm. kind of like he loves his mistress played by you know Penelope Cruz but he's almost exhausted with her at one point Yeah, he finds his wife to be a bore at times but you know, he still loves her and all that. He's absolutely smitten with his leading lady played by Nicole Kidman, even though she nev- never is going to return uh, the favor. Mm-hmm. He, I feel like his best friend is probably his uh, his mom.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's very Italian.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Mamma contini. Played by Sophia like, Loren, by the way.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. It's like, really? That's Sophia Loren? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, she looks fantastic for 75.
0: No, yeah. It's, uh, what's in the water in Europe?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Although, I will say that uh, she, uh, that's not fake tan she's using, is it?
0: Mm, 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 perhaps. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, you know, I did not expect Daniel Day-Lewis to have a voice.
1: (laughs) Well, here's the thing. He wasn't supposed to be the main guy in that. It was originally supposed to be Javier Bardem. Oh, okay. But Javier Bardem... Who apparently can really sing was so exhausted mm-hmm. after like the first week of production that they had to replace him. Mm-hmm. And it was originally supposed to be uh, Antonio Banderas, who was,
0: who, in, uh, was uh, in it was in the Broadway version of Nine.
1: He was in the Broadway revival of Nine. Yeah, The yeah, original yeah. Broadway version Guido Contini is played by our old friend Raul Julia. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but apparently, you know, uh, Antonio Banderas was a little bit miffed that uh, he didn't get the role, but mm-hmm. ultimately he had no qualms about it. Apparently he, like everyone else, didn't know Daniel Day-Lewis could sing.
0: Yeah. Um, that was really surprising, to be honest.
1: <laughs> it was. I'm like, wait, he can sing?
0: Well, maybe that's part of the method, you know. He sequestered himself and learned how to sing.
1: Honestly, when I saw the film, I remember seeing it with my parents. I was both... I liked it and I was incredibly confused by it. Yeah. Because I wasn't raised on the films of Fellini, so I didn't know what he was trying to do. All I knew was that it was directed by the same guy who directed Chicago, so... Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. that's why you got to go see it
1: I guess and maybe the tagline as well uh the tagline is this holiday season be Italian
0: oh well how can you not see uh, how can you resist yeah how can you not see uh
1: but yeah it's actually one of the uh least reviewed films of uh Daniel Day-Lewis's career uh, only got thirty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes.
0: Yeah. Um. Although, a, as a constant in his career, he's usually the the standout uh, performance in the movie. So, even in, even yeah. in a bad one, um, he still manages to impress.
1: This is why you will never see Daniel Day-Lewis do a straight up comedy.
0: Yeah. Although that might be an interesting direction for him.
1: Maybe after this current retirement.
0: Yeah, maybe after this retirement phase. We'll see what happens. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. I don't know. How long do you think it's going to last?
0: Probably five years.
1: Five years? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Uh... You heard it here first people uh 2022 or 2023 Daniel Day-Lewis is coming back to film.
0: Yeah. Probably. Um so of course after 9 there is Lincoln which is yes. responsible for his third Oscar.
1: Uh-huh. And also
0: one of his best received roles.
1: Absolutely. And when you think about it, you know you grew up, you know, learning about Abraham Lincoln in school. How do you met? Ma- how do you imagine like he sounded like if you were alive in eighteen sixty-one or sixty-two? How would you imagine Abraham Lincoln sounding?
0: Well, I mean, everyone assumes he's got like a uh, great, like, oratorial voice, but um, actually. Okay. <laughs>
1: Actually, Daniel A. Lewis actually was able, for some reason, I think he went to the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. was able to find some old recordings of Lincoln, who apparently had a much higher pitched voice than we realize.
0: Yeah, I think people described it as it's like kind of like a thinner voice than expected.
1: Yeah, more more frail. With anything?
0: No. Yeah, it, it's kind of like a. Like, I guess an old man voice. Not really, you know, yeah. someone you associate with um, all this great history around him.
1: Right. Hmm. And it's interesting, like, hearing it for the first time, I'm just like, oh. Okay, that's not how I imagine he sounded at all. Yeah. All right, then. But going to the movie itself takes place during the last uh, few months of the Civil War. It takes place uh, as Congress is debating whether or not to pass the uh, the 13th Amendment, which would officially uh, abolish slavery throughout the country. And Daniel Day Lewis, of course, like he's fighting with his uh, within his cabinet. He's fighting with uh, members of Congress. He's fighting with his own his own family. And it really presents the struggle of a man who everyone is looking to to get everything done. People are looking upon him not to not only end the war but to pass this uh, this amendment as well.
0: Yeah. And it really, you know, shows the the final moments of uh, well, like the final months of Lincoln's life and how much stress he was in and how much he was trying to live up to all the expectations. And I was trying to deal with uh, the kind of uh, pressure he had as president. And it's, uh, yeah, incredible.
1: Uh-huh. Definitely. You know, it's. One of the most amazing performances I've ever seen, and even the, the supporting cast is incredible as well, mm-hmm. from Tommy Lee Jones, David Trithair, and Sally Field, yeah. James Spader, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mm-hmm. It's truly a sight to behold. And being the big uh, American history enthusiast that I am, um, I couldn't wait. To go see this and I was not disappointed when yeah. I saw it. I said to my dad after, after I saw it, I'm, I said, he's getting the Oscar.
0: Oh yeah. I think I saw this on a date and like, yeah, it's a weird choice for a date movie, but um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's incredible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It really is, and the lengths that you know uh, Spielberg went to to make it look as authentic as possible. There's a great scene where he, uh, where Lincoln is in the uh, the telegraph office, uh, which he did on a regular basis, on uh, basically him discussing with, with a couple of a uh, Telegraph operators, one of whom is played by uh, Adam Driver. You know, like the struggle that he's going through, and you really see Lincoln more as the man. He's like just the man, flesh and blood. He's not a. He hasn't become the myth yet. He's not the larger in life figure that we uh, that we know him to be. Mm-hmm. I think it's. I think it's quite powerful when we get to see people who we've looked up to and idolize, you know, being stripped down to their basic components and seeing them as someone we can officially relate to.
0: Yeah. And, um, I think this is a very important thing to realize, especially about historical figures is that it's incredibly easy to mythologize and, um, Build them up as exceptional people, but in most cases, and you can see this when um, in in the vulnerable moments portrayed in the Lincoln film, is that like, you know at the end of the day they're people, and just because mm-hmm. they're president doesn't mean they're any more exceptional than I guess anyone else could be in a situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's uh it's a portrayal that I really enjoyed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it rightly rightly deserving gave Daniel Day Lewis his third third Oscar.
0: Yep. Um Yeah. So I guess now we come to his quote unquote final movie.
1: <laughs> but, um, I it, mean, uh, I, I'm still, uh, still debating whether or not it's actually going to be his final film.
0: I mean, I also think he's probably not, Yeah, I think he's just more taking a break, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, Basically, this takes place in the 1950s in the world of haute couture. And Daniel DeLewis lewis is, well, basically a dressmaker who um, is in a dysfunctional relationship with a waitress who is his muse. And of course, this is the Phantom Thread, which if you see the poster, I... I don't know why, but it reminds me of Metal Gear Solid Five.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, are you serious?
0: Yeah, um, it's just like his face, at like a serious. Yeah, and like
1: <laughs> just looking at the poster right now, it almost looks like you kind of get an idea of who he is, of who his character actually is. He's like a Svengali, almost. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's manip- it, pretty manipulative, kind of a, uh, kind of bitchy, actually.
1: Yeah, it's like you know, you will do this and you will do that. You will do as I say, mm-hmm. kind of thing.
0: So the relationship between uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character and um, the waitress man uh, dysfunctional i guess it doesn't quite <laughs> uh it, it doesn't quite kind of illuminate a understatement uh, yeah because you know eventually the uh, the waitress poisons uh the dressmaker and uh yeah she nurses him back to health and convinces him to get married so yeah it's uh it's incredibly I don't even know how to call it. It's, it's really incre- it's incredibly dysfunctional and manipulative on both sides.
1: Well, I mean, it wouldn't be uh, Daniel Day-Lewis without taking on a very complicated role.
0: That's true. Um, and yes, uh, this is one of those roles where he goes the whole hog and he did take up sewing. he he did learn how to uh, make a damn dress and apparently that is his plans post-retirement to to become a couturier
1: be more active in dressmaking I
0: guess (laughs) that's cool so you know watch out for the next uh, Fall Fashions by DDL
1: yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Um, um, and, oh, my God, wait a minute. Can I just say one thing? The uh, the name, the name of his character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is a Daniel D. Lewis film. You expect him to have this very serious, important, you know, very somewhat menacing name. His name in Phantom Thread is Reynolds Woodcock.
0: Yeah, who starts out uh, in business (laughs) with his sister, Cyril Woodcock. And Cyril is, I don't know, (laughs) it's not exactly a feminine name.
1: Reynolds and Cyril Woodcock. Yeah. Dating back to the 17th century, the Woodcocks have a long and rich tradition of (laughs) I can't even go any further I was just yeah (laughs) oh my god I'm so sorry Daniel Day-Lewis that you had to come up with that (laughs) that that name was given to you by Paul Thomas Anderson I am so sorry you had to (laughs) deal with that
0: yeah <laughs> well, uh we'll see if this is up for for something at the Oscars. It it, it was uh critically
1: acclaimed. I'm sure. Um yeah. Yeah, ninety two percent. It's already it's one of those films I wouldn't expect Daniel with the exception of, you know, Gangs in New York and There Will Be Blood and mm-hmm. Lincoln. A lot of his films don't really generate a lot of money at the box office. They're just really critically acclaimed.
0: Mm -hmm. Although I I would like to add that this is probably as close as he'll get to, like, quote-unquote humorous. There's bits of, like, humor and irony throughout. But really, this movie is about aesthetics in in the sense of, like, you know, what goes Mm -hmm. into dressmaking. But it's also, like, aesthetically about the period and filmmaking. So if you're into if you're into that um yeah and it's a, it's a Paul Thomas <laughs> Anderson movie.
1: Yeah. So if you love his work then definitely go and see it.
0: Mhm. So yeah, I guess that's the that's a total rundown of Daniel Day-Lewis's career and the the lengths that's right. he will go through to to get into the headspace of his characters.
1: Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so the question is, what's the most insane thing he's ever done as a method actor, or do you think he hasn't gone far enough?
0: I don't know. For me, it's a toss-up between living off the land and building a fucking cabin. Right. Although, um, (laughs) you know, pretending he was uh, only able to move his left foot is pretty egregious as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. For me, it's either living off the land or... uh, basically remaining true to character in Gangs in New York, becoming apprentice to a a butcher, Mm -hmm. and not wearing any uh, warmer clothes or seeking treatment while contracting pneumonia because he was keeping with the times.
0: Yeah. um, It's a fine line between brilliant and stupid, and he straddles that line perfectly.
1: He really does,
0: so you know, um I guess he's off making dresses after this, but um, yeah, I don't believe it. He'll probably come back at some point once he finds a movie, yeah. he'll like I,
1: I hope yes, I hope he comes back seriously, yeah, yeah. But if this does turn out to be his uh, his last film, then you know what—he's had a hell of a career.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I I did like Phantom Thread, so um, mm. not 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 the best to end out on, but still quite good. Absolutely. And yeah, I think uh, I think I'll leave you with. Uh, Guido's song from nine.
1: That's right. We'll show. Oh yeah. Show you the to audience. Hear Daniel Day-Lewis uh, channel. His inner, uh, <laughs>
0: his inner banderas.
1: That's right. <laughs> 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 so yeah, we, uh, we've hoped you've uh, had fun uh, uh, listening to us uh, this week. Uh, this has been uh, questions like this. I, uh, once again, I'm Alex.
0: And I'm Aristo.
1: And uh, we'll see you again uh, very, very soon. Take care, everybody.
0: All right. See you next time.
1: I would like to be here. I would like to be
2: there. I would like to be everywhere at once. I know that's a contradiction in terms. And it's a problem Especially when My body's nearing fifty As my mind is nearing Ten I can hardly stay up And I can't get to sleep And I don't want to wake wake tomorrow morning At the bottom of some heap But why take it so seriously? After all There's nothing at stake here Only me I want to be young and I want to be old I would like to be wise before my time And yet be foolish and trash and bold I would like the universe To get down on its knees as a guido Whatever you please, it's okay But if it's impossible, we'll arrange it! That's all that I want Am lasting for more Should I settle for less? I ask you, what's a good thing for if not for taking it to excess one limitation? I daily regret, there's only one of me I've ever met. I would like to have another me to travel along with myself I would even like to be able to sing a duet with myself I would like to be here, sing along with myself in a song To be there, walking down a lane now Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere That's a contradiction in terms I want to be here with a counter-hear melody In the hear-top of the morning to you Guido, Guido, Guido Guido, Guido, Guido Me, 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 I want to be Bruce Oh, the market of sad I would like to be Christ, Mohammed, Buddha But not have to believe in God And you know I mean it with all of my heart It's the end If something important doesn't start I want to be young But I have to be old what I want is a tale of sound and fury That's a beauty went and told I would like the universe To get down on its knees and say Guido, whatever you please is okay Even if it's ridiculous, we'll arrange it I so